Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. New research suggests community-owned pubs help temper extreme political views. Why planning deregulation could be to blame for 800,000 new unsustainable homes. A London council picks infill over estate demolition. And why trains and rail architecture could be Britain's most overlooked grassroots culture, but not for long. My name's Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My special guest this week is Tim Dunn. Tim is presenter of the TV series Secrets of the London Underground and the Architecture the Railways Built on Yesterday Channel. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's good to be here. Our first story this week is all to do with pubs, which are the focus of new research by King's College London, highlighting a link between the closure of community venues and the rise of far-right political activism. The study reveals that a sense of community decline, influenced by the loss of community centres, libraries, banks and halls, and most importantly, pubs, contributes to a rise in support for more populist, extreme, far-right political issues, adding that the loss of community pubs in particular can play a pivotal role in this transition. More than 25% of pubs have closed in the UK since 2001. The research showed that in areas which saw more than one pub closure per year, the local population was 4.3% more likely to support the far-right party UKIP than any other party. However, the same effect was not observed with the closure of pubs frequented by upper-middle-class voters with higher education and more ethnic diversity, or in pubs operating under larger pub franchises. Long-standing local pubs serve as, quote, the last bastion of British culture for white working-class identity, writes lead author at King's Diane Bole, highlighting the importance of these socio-cultural spaces. The study has not been widely covered in the national media, which has perhaps understandably been preoccupied with the many other stories concerning the plight of pubs lately, such as bar staff shortages and the pandemic. But the report nonetheless touches on several issues which are explored at length in Open City's upcoming book, Public House, A Cultural and Social History of the London Pub. Along with exploring the value of pubs to working class communities, the book shows they are also frequently bastions for all sorts of underrepresented groups throughout history, including black Londoners, French socialists and the LGBTQ community too. So Tim, what's this all about? What makes a community pub different and why are they so important for bringing people together? 
Well, I guess you can look at the, the term community pub in two different ways. You, you've either got the, the, the technical term community pub, which is a community-owned pub, for example, right? Where, you know, where you've got these people who've got together and they've gone, I want to save the local pub, for whatever reason that might be. And frankly, I'm all for that. Um, but there's the other kind of side of things, which is where you say a pub is a community and it is the heart of a community. And and I suppose, given the fact I've, I've been in and around, for example, London's gay scene over the past 20 years, is, I know that actually these pubs can be at the heart of communities and they do foster friendships and they are places where underrepresented groups can come together and have a, a, a safe space and it's probably an overused term these days I think but um, you know th th these are communities in, in, in of themselves and they are so important because they foster so many other activities within them that, 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 that can't be found elsewhere. So the author describes community pubs as the last bastion for working class identity. Now, with the decline of so many traditional pubs, you know, especially in London, where rising prices have seen many replaced with so-called gastro pubs or just sort of generally trendified, um, have working class Londoners suffered? And also, are we all the more divided as a result? I, I think we all know of a pub local to us, you know, somewhere where it's probably an estate pub or a, you know, a local pub that, that we probably thought of 10 years ago as being quite different to how it is now. I've, I think, in fact, Merlin, you and I have been to a pub. I think we, we, we've actually been in the past to, uh, to the Lord Clyde in Southwark, which was you know, a, a working-class pub built for the local area, local people in, in, in it. But over the years, I suppose, it has become trendified over time. You know, whereas I think back five, ten years, they were doing Marmite on toast as one of the, the snacks you could get at the bar for 50 dp um now it's 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 pies um kind of done up very like fancy a, blue cheese and beef yeah. pies I mean, they're not bad pies i mean i love the pub but it's not the pub it used to be um so yeah I mean, obviously I, you know, th th these places are changing and 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 as either they get uh, bought up by large pub chains uh, as we all know and, and that means that the, the, the sense of ownership and local sort of uh, continuity i suppose is interrupted as well um but I suppose these places, are, they, are, they call them public houses, which is odd, really, because they are, of course, they've always been private houses that you're invited into. And the landlord or landlady then kind of shows you around the house and sits you down <laughs> in your place. Um, and they've always been that. But, but these pubs have, have been a, you know, a, a real part of London culture you know, for centuries now. Um, they're not going to go anytime soon, but certainly I think we are seeing a homogenisation of them, which I think all of us are all too familiar with, right across this city. Um, and it does worry me slightly. I think we've seen, in, in, in the ones that I'm aware of, we've seen lots of the, the gay bars um, kind of close down uh, because developers, for example, have, have moved in. Um, but you know, we're under increasing pressure as, as, as we look at, you know, as... Developers want to monetize things, and of course, you know, they're saying actually, what, what can I get the most return out of? More housing, offices, or a pub? Now, the, the report itself, it highlights this social and cultural significance of the British pub. And um, obviously, Open Cities, it's publishing its own celebration of the pub, Public House, a cultural history, and it's called Social History of the London Pub. It's available to pre-order now. Now, one of the things I, I love about following you on Twitter, Tim, is like watching you travelling up and down the country and just, just discovering like the most amazing places. And you, know, you, seem to have, you seem to have seen and sort of connected with this landscape uh, so much. I mean, what, what can you say about 
how the pub fits into it all as a sort of unique social and cultural icon. Oh, that's nice thing you to say. Thank you. Well, first off, that, that book, if you're listening to this, that I, I've seen some print proofs of PDFs of that book, and it is brilliant. Honestly, I have I never thought I wanted to learn about so many pubs in London. It is genuinely one of the most fascinating books I've ever, ever picked up about London uh, buildings. I get to go to some very interesting places because I the film work that I've been doing or because of perhaps volunteer work that I do with steam railways or heritage attractions and so on. And quite often you find them interesting places. So they can be in anything from the middle of Manchester to being in the highlands of Scotland. But, you know, one of the things that is constant about them is the existence of the pub. Now, I think this report actually talks a little bit about how it is predominantly a working white, working class white uh, background for many communities. But actually, you know, we must remember as well that it's actually mostly men. Um, a lot of women have been excluded from pubs for, for generations. Really. And of course, you know, my, my mum talks about times when she wasn't allowed to go to the pub. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's shocking now. I didn't know if that kind of thing existed in the 60s, um, but it was frowned upon even then. And I, I didn't really realise that. Um, so much of it, it, it's not so representative of all communities. Uh, when you go to a, a local village, for example, and let's say we're going to you know, uh, a, an estate uh, pub, for example, um, out in the back of, uh, what was that? Or Dudley, for example. It, it, it's a nice mix of people now. Perhaps maybe 20 years ago, it wasn't quite such a good mix of people. In terms of it was just men before. And now there are families coming in as well and using them. And that's because the pubs are those that are actually survive, they have to diversify and they have to change their offering and be more welcoming. So I suppose, um, you know, what you have seen I suppose, is, is an improvement, I think, and that's what I've, that's what I've probably observed across the board, an improvement in hospitality and a realisation that to survive, these institutions have to change with the communities around them because they can't stay as just this little building that's preserved in aspic. And my God, you know, there's, there's enough legislation in this country to keep things preserved in aspic, the right things and the best things. But but we, we should update things. And the, the concept of the pub can, will and should change. So, Tim, we touched on the Lord Clyde. What are your other favourite pubs in and around London? And what makes them so special, even if they are in aspect? I had a feeling you might ask me some of my, my favourite pubs. I've got to mention them. I won't mention them all, but there, there's, about, there's about 10 pubs that you can do in a long line, which are all train-themed. If you start at the Metropolitan Bar, which is the old Chilton Court restaurant uh, at Baker Street Station, it's a bit at Weatherspoon now, then you've got the Euston Flyer, then you've got the Rocket, because it's going off, off down towards the east, then you've got the Signal Box in the station itself at Euston, you've got the Doric Arch at Euston in the Brutalist thing itself, then you've got the Euston Tap and the two lodges, you've got the Parcel Yard in King's, in King's Cross, you've got Betjeman's in St Pancras, and the Booking Office finally in St Pancras as well, to finish off if you're still standing. Um... And I must admit, I have done that pub crawl a number of times, uh, but we don't normally ever seem to finish it for some reason. Not quite sure why. Um, but of course, there's also honourable mention, I suppose, the other one, which is, I don't know this, but that many years ago, lots of tube stations used to have pubs on them. Loads of them did, like Sloan Square Station had the hole-in-the-wall pub down down the platform. And that, that's gone, of course, now. And of course, you can't drink alcohol on the, on the tube anymore, um, as poor Diane Abbott found out to her, her, her distress when she was hauled up for it on social media a couple of years ago. Um, but there is one, there's still one pub on a tube station platform, and that's Kew Gardens in the station building itself. So if you want to go and have a drink on a tube station platform, sort of ish, in the building, Kew Gardens is the one. 
You are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like The Lundown and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes and consider becoming an Open City friend. The Lundown is supported by Adobe, makers of software including Photoshop, InDesign and Audition, the programme we use to edit this show. Go to open-city.org.uk forward slash Adobe to sign up for a special discounted subscription to the Adobe Creative suite for as little as £9.99 a month and Adobe will donate to Open City for everyone who signs up. Our next story appeared in The Independent and it's all to do with how historic planning deregulation dating back to 2015 could be making the government's drive to decarbonise the economy all the more difficult. The article claims that almost 800,000 homes have been built to lower emission standards and without carbon offsetting over the last six years, as a result of the Code for Sustainable Homes being abolished by David Cameron's government in 2015. The Code, which was mandatory for all house builders upon its introduction in 2007, aimed to ensure the sustainable design and construction of dwellings, and introduced a legal requirement for all new homes to be made net zero carbon by 2016. Since the plan was scrapped at the last minute, almost none of the new homes have been built to net zero standards, and because homes last a very long time, a vast majority of them will still be standing in 2050, when the whole UK economy is due to be net zero. The 2015 scrapping of the Code for Sustainable Homes therefore means that almost 800,000 new homes built over the past six years may well need additional environmental upgrades or retrofitting to bring them into line with our carbon ambitions. It also sheds some light on the political challenges the government may now face as it seeks to introduce environmental regulations for new homes, such as a much-anticipated ban on gas boilers, just six years after its predecessor government swept earlier eco-housing measures away. So, Tim, this story follows last week's damning IPCC report, which painted such a bleak picture of the future we have in store, unless dramatic action is taken now. Why was it that just six years ago, we were in a situation where green initiatives were being abolished and environmentally conscious legislation rolled back? And where does that leave us now with the government being in a situation where it must introduce or reintroduce such very measures? Well, Merlin, first of all, thank you for having me on as the uh, Environment Minister today. Uh, Honestly, really, I mean, it does strike me that, I mean, if I was playing devil's advocate, because I'm not, obviously, the Environment Minister, and I would never be that, because I'm the sort of person who drives steam engines along up, up Welsh mountains for fun. So I, I can hardly claim to be uh, the greenest person on the planet all the time. But but it does sound to me like another example of a government that doesn't know its arse from its elbow. Um, let's be quite honest. Um, look, it's just short-termism, classic short-termism. Policy changes to win some votes. Someone's done something without realising the actual impact of it. Haven't thought it through. Boom, here we are now. And everyone's gone, oh... God, I mean, can you legislate for it? Can you? Yes. Should we legislate more for things? Yes. Do you want more laws and this kind of stuff? Yes. Do you want to get? Yes. I mean, just just make it happen. But we won't, will we? Because we always just pussyfoot around it, and then we let the private sector do what they want to do, and then we end up sort of slipping on things. We'll then end up changing our targets, as I said earlier, and it'll end up just being some kind of fudge like usual. So, um. Whenever I see this announcement saying we're going to do X and Y by whatever date, I kind of like, I just don't believe it. 
Obviously, I think the solution to all of this is just everyone travels by train. Our third story was covered in the AJ and it's all to do with Brent Council's decision to infill rather than demolish a northwest London housing estate. Karakusevic Carson Architects was appointed to the St Raphael's Estate project in 2019 and drew up plans for both a complete redevelopment of the 760 home estate and an alternative infill scheme where new homes would be built on the little bits of land between the existing buildings. Brent Council leader Mohammed Butt said the council now believed only the infill proposals were affordable and that as a result the wholesale redevelopment plan would not be presented to residents in a ballot on the estate's future. The decision came down to a number of reasons, Butt said, including uncertainty around the future availability of funding from the government. Brent Council now expects to submit a planning application for the first phase of Infill Plus in spring next year and to complete works in 2026. So Tim, earlier on in the show, we talked a lot about the value of community in bringing society together. The St Raphael's estate was completed in the, in the early 1980s and is home to an extremely diverse community. Brent itself is one of the most diverse areas of London, going by the metric of country of birth. Um, what is the cultural value of estates like these and why is it so important that they're preserved and refurbished rather than being demolished and rebuilt as they so often are when you demolish stuff like this you end up losing a lot of of of, of memories and it's, it's that community memory right especially especially i think we often we often talk about how there's this idea of continuity in places which, which is very important and and Housing estates, of course, are vulnerable to a loss of continuity, far more than private property is, or, 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 or perhaps owner-occupied uh, buildings are, because people are more transient to these things. They're moving between places, and, and perhaps they're moving between, they're moving different tenancies within the Brent you know, Authority, for example. So by demolishing stuff, you, you, you speed up that, 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 um, that loss of memory, that loss of place, I suppose. Um, I suppose it, you know, it, it, it's... These places have huge value in in being places where you are cheek by jowl by different types of people. I, I lived on the Golden Lane estate for a few years. Um, well, I, I, I lived in Barbican for a little while. I was very lucky to live there for a bit uh, as a private tenant, effectively. And then I went to the Golden Lane estate as, as a private tenant. But again, there the, the, these days, it's a mixture of, I think it's about 60, 30 uh, corporation tenants and private tenants. And... It was interesting being amongst different sorts of people and families, for example. But you experience a different kind of life uh, with, with family around the place, right? And you, and you experience a di and, and and with diversity of community, you have a different insight in different places, and you have an understanding of different worlds, and you have an understanding of different culture, and you have an understanding and perhaps more empathy with people around you in the wider world. And and so any as, as well, I, I love campus living because I think you learn so very much on on any great estate, no matter whether it's private or public, uh, social rather. Um, you learn an awful lot about people around you and um, and you know that most of those buildings have been developed with a genuine care to try and make life better and that's interesting. Our final segment this week is all to do with transport, specifically trains and railway architecture and the value of grassroots cultural activities. What makes up British culture is incredibly hard to define and definitions of culture will vary greatly depending on who you ask and which side of the infamous culture war debate they fall. On the one hand, you have the culture defined by Britain's elite, one which was traditionally fashioned in the country's public schools, elite universities and rarefied cultural institutions uh, and exported 
around the world as an image of Britain. Under this umbrella term of culture, you can find things like the National Trust, the last night of the proms, the British Museum, even the Sterling Prize for Architecture. And of course, lots and lots of stately homes, all of which have a significant presence on our television screens. Uh, on the other hand, you have a more accessible form of culture, popularised, shaped and enjoyed by the masses, representing a sort of response to the cultural hubs and institutions controlled and accessed by just a few. This is grassroots cultural activities, most often born from the working classes. Uh, in this field, there's things like football and sports, DIY, gardening nature spotting uh, all actually have quite an established presence on our screens and now they're being joined by trains and railway architecture something which had been a bit marginalized written off as train spotting uh, but is gaining much more recognition now as a grassroots cultural activity driving this steam train forward has been shows like Secrets of the London Underground and The Architecture the Railways Built, which are both presented by Tim Dunn, our guest today. Um, spotlighting little-known London heritage, these shows have brought us you know, fascinating insights into things like the abandoned Hoban to Aldwych branch of the Piccadilly line. Uh, the Clapham South deep level bomb shelter uh, and the disused tube station uh, Down Street in Mayfair. I mean, it's been a real joy to, to see these things. I, I fully recommend watching this show. It's absolutely excellent. Um, Tim, can you talk a bit about the magic of trains and railway architecture for you? What does it all mean? Oh, can I? For me, the joy of railways is the fact that it is these two strips of steel. I've often said this. It's these two strips of steel. If you're standing on a platform somewhere, those two strips of steel, if you were to connect them or flip the points in the right direction, you could end up anywhere in the world, pretty much. This pair of, of, of steel strips has connected and bound this country together for, for almost 200 years now. I mean, we're getting now towards the 200th anniversary of, of, uh, of 1825, which is the opening of the Stockton and Darlington Railway. But it's interesting, and I think that the joy of railway architecture is, is that they are each one is a portal, right? So you can get off that, that that set of steel of steel rails wherever you want to disembark from, you can get off it, and that railway station, that that building, is your portal to that community and that place. And it's interesting because you mentioned grassroots and you mentioned um, understanding of, of, of enjoyment of architecture and so on. I'll come on to this I think, in a minute. Talk about open house a little bit as well, but but. I suppose it, it started off not really as, as, as a working class thing, but very much, again, because of people who are more educated and, 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 and understanding the architecture and saying, oh, that's gothic versus classical, whatever it might be, or modernist and so on. And, and that's always been the, sort of the, the, uh, the space of, of perhaps academics or railway enthusiasts or um, perhaps people who are more um, uh, I suppose, looking at art forms or buildings as art forms, and that has been their preserve. But now we're starting to see people take an interest in those buildings as local landmarks because they are the first thing you see when you get to a town or the last thing you see when you leave it and and therefore it is your gateway to your town and it becomes quite important to people because as, as, as public transport rises up in prominence and cars are perhaps less important and if you see multimodal and perhaps sort of you know last mile solutions happening at stations these railway stations i believe are going to become the, the the hubs and the portals of towns once more i'd be quite interested to hear as well i mean what sort of people have you met through a shared love of trains and railway architecture and is this something that possibly attracts marginalized groups and people yes i think it's fair to say it does and, and, and but also it attracts people from all walks of life and that's what i like about it because it doesn't matter who you are it's one of those we talk about grassroots culture right what defines grassroots culture it's something that basically is pretty much low cost because it's 
accessible because it means anyone can do it at any ability and it doesn't require huge amounts of skill to get started and you can enjoy it on any level. Railways, like all sorts of other fandoms, have different levels to access it and people consume it and protect it and love it for different reasons. You have super fans, the super enthusiasts, of course, and it is their safe space, it's their happy place. And I remember I did a programme a few years ago called Train Spotting Live on BBC Four, which was the most remarkable commission I think I've, I've ever been involved in. But some people hated it. And, and that's because I think some people hated it because they thought it was dumbing it down and making people laugh. And it wasn't laughing at train spotters. People like me, because I go train spotting. I, I, I will take down a number. I'll check. It. I go. It's the flying banana going through. Going, that is a train, by the way. There is a train called. It's a nickname. It's called the flying banana. Um, it, it's it, it's odd. People felt like we were accessing their their safe space. We were being we were violating the thing that they'd held dear. Because actually, you know what? There are lots of people in this world who have been bullied for their love of trains or their love of comics whatever it might be and we shouldn't i'm very lucky i never was but other people have been and still are and it is their safe space and then then a television company then go let's take everyone inside it it's like wow oh this is my place but i say but it comes from this grassroots thing of of saying that, that that lots of different people can have an appreciation of trains or architecture because it's all around us and most of us use them. What I like about it is that if you start showing people what's interesting about an everyday thing, whether it's architecture or it's gardening or plants or you know, for spring watch, for example, right? This stuff is freely available and they can get either you can love it on a really intense level or you can just appreciate a thing that's near you and go, I didn't know that. Ah, oh, I'm so pleased someone explained that object to me. Or I'm now, I, now I feel more connected to my place and my thing and, the, and where I live because that building, I always wondered why it was shaped like that and why it was there. I never knew that. And that's great. And so anyone, whatever your level, can enjoy it. And that's why I like this stuff. So, Tim, you presented uh, The Architecture of the Railways Built and also Secrets of the London Underground, a show which is airing on Yesterday Channel uh, right now, exploring the hidden world of the Tube Network. Um why is it such an important and interesting story to tell? And why does it inspire so many people? If it wasn't for the tube, this city would look nothing like it does right now, right? It would look nothing like it at all. And, and, and London is a very strange, has a very strange form, you know, and, and, and it has a, a fascinating form, you know, and the way it's being curtailed and exploited in different ways is endlessly like, mind-boggling. You know, if you have a tube strike whole chunks of London just go silent. Um, you know, it, it's remarkable. It is genuinely remarkable what this tube has done. And and the Tuppany tube and, and the early subsurface lines, so the ones that were cut and cover underneath the road, so you've got the Metropolitan Railway that ran across the top, you know, underneath where the Euston Road is now. Um, th- that was built effectively to get stuff across the city because you couldn't transport things to the city because it was taking too long. It's that the roads are too clogged of horse dung. And 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 so the, the train was built to kind of get around the shit, um, if I'm being honest about it. And it just, it just took too long. So that is still what it does today. You know, it, it takes us around the crap and it gets us to where you want to be. And it has enabled us. And the thing is, it, because it has become such a great branded system as well. And it, we go back to, to the branding of the 1920s and the way it has evolved. 
that has been you know, the roundel, for example, and the typeface of Johnston, you know, um, and the style of the stations. You know, you, you've got, so what's his name, uh, Ed, uh, Leslie Green, who designed 50, was 54 stations of his left now, I think there are. Um, they are London landmarks. This is part of our DNA. The tube is in all of us. You know, everyone's got a favourite tube line. Actually, you've probably got, you've probably got your least favourite tube line. So on the 4th of September, buildings across London, this is like schools, churches, private homes, theatres, museums, galleries, they're all going to open their doors to the public free of charge as part of the Open House Festival. Um, I mean, how do you think this event, this epic event, which it will be celebrating its 30th year, uh, this uh, coming year, um, how does it fall into this landscape of mass culture? Um, and do you see any parallels between open house festival and this kind of appreciation of, of trains and railway architecture isn't it funny how open house has changed over the years right because it started off if i if i think back to how it started basically it's architects looking around other architects houses and their practices you know <laughs> and going it, it's it's kind of you know it's for a small elite group of people and and architecture perhaps you look back 30 years ago I considered architecture to be almost impenetrable. There were some things on telly about architecture, one foot in the past, which was a bit, mm, okay, building sites, quite good. You know, a few things on telly about architecture uh, for mass media, but not an awful lot. Since that time, Open House has, or Open City as, as, as an organisation, has changed completely. And, and it has become no longer the preserve of, of just architects who know about this stuff and want to see the latest, I don't know, the latest uh, type of granite for their, their worktop. Um, <laughs> um, it's now much more about people looking at buildings in their area and understanding them and being shown into something in their community that is part of the every landscape, right? And, and, and going, oh, that's so clever. That's so clever. Someone's got the solution to this thing. And it's on my doorstep. Um, and it's these little stories, and, and 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 every time the reason I love open house, and the reason I, it, it is, I think, actually quite similar to, to a bit like train spotting. Actually, I'll come to that in a minute. <laughs> um, but it's 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 about looking at things and and being and telling stories and being told stories about problems and people finding solutions, and those things being familiar. And it's like you thought you know about this thing, you didn't. And I've got a hot this, 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 this building, this object, this site, this place, this park has got a whole different secret life that you are, we're about to unlock. And we've got the keys for it. I think that is a lovely, lovely thing. Um, so it does have the roots in, 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 in so it have roots in, in not mass culture at all. It has roots, obviously, in, 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 in incredibly um, privileged culture, but it has become a mass cultural event. And, and, and the reason it has done that is because it's free and it is for everyone. And it is, and it, 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 it's, you know, people put their buildings forward. It's not like you guys go, and I know you do go out there and ask some buildings to do it. I've got, so I've, I've put some little slips in people's doors. Um, it's, it's now grassroots because anyone can do it. You can see stuff, it's free of charge. And there are even buildings that are open to the public that charge, that are free for open house, right? So that is democratising these spaces, saying anyone can do it. And, and, I know we haven't done it the past couple of years, or I haven't seen in the past couple of years, those books, those guidebooks you used to get. I used to love it for Open House when we used to run around London and like, how many can we do? Like if you start at like, you know, wh what is the queue you need to start off at at the start of the morning? Where's the longest queue going to be? So you start, at, you, you get there at like Sparrow Farts and you queue up with a cup of coffee. 
you do your you do a foreign office, boom, 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 then you run to the next one, then the next one, then the next one. You're like, oh, I've done 14 and it's only three o'clock in the afternoon. And actually you're getting building blindness and everyone wants to die. And actually you think, I think it's the pub, but no, I have to get more. Um, it's, like, it's the thrill of the chase. It's like train spotting, right? You get one, like, oh, I could, I could wait for another train. I could, it could be a good train on the corner. It could be a class 37. I love class 37s. I wonder if one of those, I love those. You wait for it, go for another one. It's like you're ticking off in your book. It's great. So... Yeah, it is a bit like train spotting. It's accessible. Anyone can do it. Um, train spotting live, we did that program. One of the, I said the people didn't like it with train spotters. He said it being silly, you know, it, it belittled them. But what other people loved was, and I loved the next day, was that Twitter and Facebook was awash, like literally, like thousands of people going, I'm on my commuter, I'm on Reading Station, I'm, Gild I'm Guildford Station platform, and uh, a 707165 has just come in. And do you know what that means? It's a class 707, which means it was built in so and so, and 165 is this, and it's like, now I get it. I know, I know what I'm doing now. I, I, know, and it's, I, like, I like that. You're just shining a light on stuff that people didn't know and didn't think they wanted to know, and now they do, and now everyone is happy. Tim, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on The London. Uh, obviously, we're all very keen to watch the next episodes of Secrets of the London Underground. Uh, where should listeners go so they can keep up to speed on your television work, but also your writing and all the other amazing things you're doing? I would definitely avoid my Twitter account because it's just, as I say, it's incessant and it's mostly trains and buildings, which is uh, Mr. Tim Dunn. Um <sighs> But um, yeah, uh, the, 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 the underground program is is, is uh, it's one last one. It's coming Monday, um, and it is genuinely like it, it was as much fun to film as it looks. It generally was, and and the people filming it are all having as much fun as it looks like on camera, uh, because basically we're all just nerds, and we can't believe how lucky we've got. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. It's been an immense pleasure uh, to hear all your insights on these interesting topics, and uh, we'll speak again soon on the on London. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at, at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.